Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. I'm Jason Silverman from Stollery Children's Hospital, and I'm joined today by my co-host from Nationwide Children's Hospital, Dr. Jennifer Lee. How you doing, Jen? Hey, Jason. I'm doing great. It's a pretty cold summer day here in Ohio. Really? Ah, uh, that's too bad. I, I'm I'm pretty psyched about summer here in Edmonton. Uh, winters are obviously long. We want to say a warm welcome to all of our new fellows, all of our new residents and medical trainees who have started their new jobs or were ed- promoted in the last week. So congratulations. And as a program director, I'm always really excited when the new recruits are coming in the door full of enthusiasm and curiosity and and looking to learn. Um, and, and that really leads in really well to our amazing special guest this episode. We have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Alan Leichner. Dr. Alan Leichner is the Chief Medical Education Officer at Boston Children's Hospital, but he's also a gastroenterologist and the Clinical Vice Chair of Department of Pediatrics there. Absolutely. And can we just throw in a really, really nice guy too? <laughs> oh yeah, that too. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> so, so th- I mean, this, this was an absolutely fantastic conversation that we had with him, really went uh, deep into some concepts on medical education and really sort of how he got into his uh, passion for the role. Um, and we can't wait to share it with you guys. Yeah, on to the show. So, Dr. Lechner, thank you again so much for being here on B- Battle Sounds Podcast. Uh, thanks for the invitation, Jason and Jen. Um, for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? I guess I would say I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist who focuses on education in one sense. But the other way one might sort of characterize me or I might characterize myself is to say that over the course of my career, I've enjoyed most being a developer or a facilitator. My joy has come clinically from helping patients uh, cope with illness and develop into functioning adults. And on the education end, it's helping my learners uh, grow into uh, great staff people uh, and my educators uh, get even better. I love that. You're like a catalyst. I hope so. If a catalyst means that I'm not changed by all this, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been asking everyone this next question during the pandemic, and I've personally gotten a lot of great advice from it. So tell us a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you recommend for our listeners. So I have two things to recommend. The first is uh, my wife handed me a book and I haven't read a paper book in a long time, but I just finished The Soul of an Octopus uh, by Cy Montgomery, which is a great book. Two things you should know about me in advance. Uh, One is that if I weren't a doctor, I'd be a naturalist and I'd be working for a zoo or an aquarium. Um, And the other aspect of this 
is that I really enjoy uh, learning more about uh, science. So this book really describes in scientific terms an organism that's very unlike us, but on the other hand, demonstrates that octopi have intelligence, um, they have personalities, and that's what's intriguing. And it raised my whole uh, thought process about what it is to be conscious and have a soul. So it was a great book. I highly recommend it. And the other thing that's happened to me during the pandemic is that my health uh, club membership lapsed for a number of reasons. So I bought an elliptical and I needed something to do on the elliptical to keep me distracted. So I watched uh, both seasons of The Mandalorian and I'm a Star Wars fanatic. So I would highly recommend that. Unfortunately, I just finished season two and stopped doing the elliptical. So I have to come up with something else to read. Do you have any baby Yodas in your office? I don't, but uh, on certain websites, I have used that as an avatar. Next birthday. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. Um, well, that, those are great recommendations. Um, over your clinical career, you've had a variety of clinical interests and areas of focus. Most recent, recently, you've been working in optimizing the care of children with celiac disease. Um, one thing that's been very clear and longstanding academic interest of yours, however, has been medical education. Um, it wasn't that long ago that academic clinicians in pediatric GI basically chose between bench and clinical research. What inspired you to pursue a master's in health professions education and really focus on that as your scholarly pursuit? And were there specific mentors or role models that, that helped spark that? So I would say that my movement towards medical education was in part burnout with some of the other aspects of my career. And it's an interesting story. I, I've always loved education and teaching, but I grew up in an era where there was no formal training in education, so I never pursued that. But uh, I had been the cl clinical director of a large GI division for more than 20 years, and I was burnt out. So people would come to me and say, I really don't like my office. It's not big enough. Or my office doesn't have a window. And I really would like to get some sunlight that would improve my seasonal affective disorder. Or I don't like my secretary or I don't like my nurse. And it got to the point where I would turn to them and say, I'm really sorry about this but I don't care. I had moved on from issues like that and they were no, not any longer important to me. Now, once a month I have coffee with a, uh, the former director of our developmental unit who was an intern with me and we just talk. And I must have been complaining about this very subject about how I was burnt out in terms of clinical things. And he said, why don't you do a sabbatical and pursue education? 
the issue is that not being a researcher in my institution, which is a research-based institution, I never thought I could get a sabbatical. But lo and behold, both the chief of pediatrics and my GI chief agreed to do this. Um, so I went off to do education. Uh, doing it at my age, it wasn't that long ago that I did, did this, was an advantage because the teachers who were 10 to 15 years younger than me, I think were afraid to upset me by giving me bad grades. So I did really well in the program. <laughs> um, and I, as I look back at who were the influences that actually led me to pursue education, it's really not an individual, but a course. So there, the Harvey, Harvard Macy Institute, which is based in Boston and was originally funded by the Macy Institute, uh, puts on a number of courses for educators. And the papers that have been written on this course describe it as being transformative. And that's what it did for me. It just opened the door for me to think about all aspects of education. So that's what uh, got me interested. And then my friend pointed out the opportunity that I didn't think was there. And that's how it ended up happening. That's a, that's a great origin story. <laughs> and, and it's also uh, inspiring to hear that uh, it's never too late, that you don't have to do this right from the beginning of your career to, to pursue this path. Yeah, I ag agree with that. And that's one of the messages I hope people will take away is, you know, the ability or the challenge of taking risks in their career and not necessarily going down the straight and narrow. Early in my career, I was totally clinically focused, nose to the grindstone, and really didn't look up to see you know, what was I really enjoying and what was my future? And what I would recommend to people is that they keep their eyes open for opportunities and not be afraid to take the risk to change in your career. Not all people are hired to focus in med ed, but we as physicians are all teachers. We teach trainees, our patients, our parents. So for our listeners who may not have that dedicated time to focus in med ed, what are your favorite high yield adult learning theory principles that anyone listening to this can take away and implement in their own practice? So I love thinking about adult learning principles as sort of the first step. How are adults different in terms of their learning relative to the years of being in a classroom that we all went through? And I think that the key points to that are the fact that adult learners bring experience to the table, they're not starting with a clean slate. So one thing we have to do as educators is relate the new learning to where they're starting. Uh, and I think that's very important. Also, it's helped me to think that adult learners want practical learning that's relevant to their day-to-day -day job. So that's helped me 
get rid of some of the items that I might think are important in a subject, but are relevant and practical uh, for the learners. The other thing is that adult learners like things that are interactive. And a lot of learning theories now show the more that you interact with the subject, analyze things rather than just memorize them, the longer one uh, retains the learning. Uh, So if we go back to the most basic theory, it's probably constructivism. And I'm going to give you a very simpler, simple overview of what constructivism is. Uh, In my mind, knowledge exists not outside an individual, but only within your brain. So if you are a specialist in eosinophilic esophagitis, and you put two experts, another expert in the room, your knowledge is not exactly the same because we all build structures and relate our learning to other things. So I like to think of constructivism is that we build within ourselves constructs or scaffolding or schemes or scripts around topics that are unique to us and to our experience. Now, an expert will have a very complicated structure because they know all the nuances and it will be very connected to all the other um, concepts that they have. Whereas uh, early learners starts with almost a clean slate and we as teachers need to help them build those concepts. So with that constructionist view in mind, and I'm starting to get nervous that I'm getting too deep in the weeds here, so let me know. But uh, cognitive load is another uh, theory that helps me think. So as we learn, we sense things in our environment. We put them into working memory, and we all know about working memory. That's why telephone numbers have seven digits, because we can hold in working memory seven plus or minus two things. And then eventually we process that to go into long-term memory. We incorporate the new information into those scripts that we have that's, that's our underlying knowledge. Now, there's some work or load to creating those scripts, and that's called germane load. Uh, But often we think more about extrinsic and intrinsic load. So some topics that we learn are more difficult than others. So for me, renal physiology, very difficult. All the metabolic pathways that, that we, you know, that's not where I excelled on the GI boards. Um, Those are very difficult topics intrinsically. And how do we as teachers help? By helping people create those concepts or scripts so they can understand these hard topics more easily. And by chunking, by taking a complicated uh, subject and dividing it in little pieces. Now, sort of the enemy of learning is extrinsic load. And that's the 
information that's not relevant to our learning. So if you look at somebody's PowerPoint slides and they little have dancing bunnies on the side or, you know, very complicated templates, that actually distracts you from learning the message. So I'm challenged as an educator to help people deal with high intrinsic load. And my slides have, I've got much less on my slides over time. When I was an early educator, my goal at giving a talk was to take everything that was possibly known about a subject and jam it into my talk. That's what I thought a great talk was. Now, I put very little in my talks. And if people walk away with two or three concepts that they'll remember, I think I'm successful. So I have to jump in real quick because it's perfect you're talking about that because Jason was just telling me he's finishing slides for a talk that's coming up. So you better go back to your slides and take out all of that extraneous extrinsic load, Jason. I'm going to fess up. I, I am totally on board with what Dr. Legner is saying. 90% um, of what's on my slides are just pictures. So Jennifer... The irony, of course, is that I'm the moderator of that session. So if he doesn't take the information out, I'll take it out. So don't worry. <laughs> My favorite book in education is uh, was recently uh, written. It's called Make It Stick it's by Rediger, McDaniel, and Brown. And it takes educational theory and distills it so that it's practical. That book has helped me become a better learner and certainly helped me become a better teacher. So one of the things that's in that book is the strategy of practicing retrieval of information. So if you were studying for a big exam that was going to happen in a couple months from now, and you studied by rereading the chapter, and you reread it three or four times. That's not as efficient as if you wrote in the margins and synthesized some of the information or pointed out why it was important, because then you're more apt to read it because you're more involved with the material. And the people, you guys may have been those people, but the people who did flashcards and practice actually testing themselves, that's the most effective way to study. So if you spent equal time rereading the chapter versus taking practice tests, the people who take the practice tests retain the info for longer. The other uh, scheme in that book is elaboration. And we use this a lot in medicine. So it's getting people to repeat their learning in their own terms. So sometimes we'll ask families that we've explained things to, to repeat it back to us to make sure they have understanding. But that process of repeating it is helpful. The variant of this are all the mnemonics we used. That's another technique. Uh, remember when uh, President Trump was bragging about his cognitive test? That's a test for dementia. And what they do, because I had to take this to get long-term disability, they give you a series of words and you have to remember them. And the best way to remember them is make up a story about them and how they fit together 
because it's easier for you to remember that story that encompasses everything. The last thing I'm going to say about theory, and you can tell I'm a passionate educator because I haven't let you talk at all, but another principle is the generation principle. So if we let people struggle to find an answer rather than just feeding it to them, they're more apt to remember it. Uh, we did a workshop on this, and I gave them, uh, the students, a mystery article for them to decide. Now, this article had rubber feet, and it had a electric cord, and it had a hole in the side with the tubing coming out. And so I asked them to figure out what this was. So they had a reason, well, you know, why would something have rubber feet to keep it from sli uh, slipping or from to modify vibration? So it could, it's electric because it's got a plug. And then what's this thing? So if you plugged it in, actually you felt air come out. And this was an aquarium pump goes along with my uh, hobby, which is raising tropical fish. Another reason why I like the octopus book. So helping people have the challenge of difficult learning can lead to better retention. So with that, I'm going to stop talking about uh, theory. I think it's one of the great shames in uh, medical training and in post-secondary education as a whole, even, even secondary or, or earlier education. We don't teach uh, learners how to learn. We just assume they will if we give them the information in the right way. Um, and I think having those strategies, I really wish I had known all of those strategies before studying for my exams. Um, I mentioned earlier that clinical and bench research have long been the traditional path in terms of scholarship in pediatric GI um, and medicine more broadly. But certainly in the last 10, 15 years, medical education has garnered more respect, more recognition um, as a valid and valuable scholarly pursuit. What do you think's driven that shift in perception of medical education as, as a scholarly field? And where do you think MedEd is going to go over the next 10 years? So a good way to look at what you just said, Jason, in terms of the evolution is to look at the promotion pathway at my medical school. So when I started, which was probably before you guys were born, the only pathway for promotion was a research pathway. I was not a researcher, so there was no way for me to get promoted at Harvard Medical School. Then the next step was to have a research track and a clinician teacher track. And that's obviously the one that I fell onto. And we've moved forward from that. So there are now three tracks. There's an investigator track, there's a clinical expertise and innovation track, which is sort of clinical research. And then there's a pure education track, teaching and educational leadership. The problem, of course, is the percentage of people at my institution that go up on the education track, 3 to 5%, depending on the year. So we haven't made it there yet. Uh, but it's interesting to think about what could uh, have motivated this increasing interest in education? Uh, part of it is 
that we've developed more theory and there's a better basis for things. Um, the care we give is increasingly complex. And so it takes really good education to be able to master those things. The amount of knowledge is increasing at a tremendous rate. So the last time I checked, medical information was doubling every 73 days, which is just amazing. So what we have to do is train people to be lifelong learners because they have to keep up with all the changes. The other factor that's happened, I think, is that society has pushed back a little bit. They want to make sure that the people that we are training are truly competent when they finish. And that that's an, another major factor. So where is this going to go in the future? Well, I think that curriculum, at least in medical schools, is going to change. And Jen's a good example of this because we have to teach our students now about new subjects like informatics and big data because they're informing uh, medicine. The I know, Jason, you, you deal with the Royal College, but the ACGME in the U.S. has had six core competencies for, I don't know, 15 years or longer. And the last one, which is systems-based practice, nobody knew what that meant. But nowadays, people are saying, we got to teach more about this because we live in such complicated medical systems that it's very important to know how to navigate those systems. Even some of our clinical skills need to be adjusted. So uh, it could be that there'll be a time where a lot of the decision-making is not based on clinical acumen, but on genetic studies or on algorithms for diagnosis. And that that could be run by people with less training than doctors. And maybe the doctors are going to be the ones to deal with gray areas. And do we need training on how to make decisions when there's not a lot of data? So population health is more important. So I think all those things are going to happen. And the way we learn, I think, is going to change. Uh, I am hopeful that as we turn more to competence-based training, we'll make it work. The goal of competence-based education is to educate somebody until they're competent and then make decisions that once they're competent, they go on to the next level. But even though we say we're competency-based, people still have to wait out the term of their residency or internship or fellowship before they move on. And wouldn't it be great if we truly had competency-based uh, education that was more efficient? When we finish one subject, we could move on uh, to the next one. So I think that's going to happen. Technology is going to happen. The thing that's happened at children's is that we are doing a lot of 3D printing of individual models. So the plastic craniofacial surgeons now who 
take care of misshapen skulls, do a 3D print of the skull that they can manipulate and plan their surgery in advance. And I would not be surprised that in the future that people whose child needs a surgery will come and ask the surgeon, well, have you printed his body part and practiced the procedure yet? So I, I think there's a brave new world coming. And that's going to depend on us as educators to prepare the future leaders. I'm just going to share one one small story that uh, resonates. Um, my oldest son attended skating classes at a local rink. And the way that this program works is they have all of these groups spread out across the rink and they work on individuals' preliminary skills. And as soon as you get that skill you move over to the next group where they're working on something else, not the next class, not the next term immediately. Once you've passed that skill, you move on to the next group, you start working on the next skill. When you've adapted and you've figured out that skill, you move up to the next level where they're working on a still more advanced skill. It's, it's uh, I think, a good model for, for maybe where we need to get to. Oh, I agree with you, Jason. So one theory that I didn't hit you with in that long series is deliberate practice. Mm -hmm. And that's something that high-level elite athletes and musicians do. So they don't just keep practicing the same movement or the same musical piece over and over again. They concentrate on where they need to work to move to the next step, and they continually have coaches. And so my goal would be for us to have deliberate practice around teaching endoscopic procedures, for instance, uh, because we don't do that. You know, we just sort of like have the trainee go through it and they may make the same mistakes that they did with another preceptor. So I think that's something that we could shoot for. So I think this next question really resonates with me because for those who don't know, I was recently hired into this new position and you had mentioned the tracks and there's a couple different tracks at Nationwide Children's Hospital and one is the clinical educator track. So what do you think is different about someone who either self-identifies or is viewed by others as a clinician educator? And for those who are knowing they want to go in that pathway, do you have suggestions on what we should pursue early in our career to help us? So that position of clinician educator has also evolved over time. At the very beginning, when they had the clinician teacher track at Harvard, that was really a term for a clinician in an academic center. So if you look at the initials of clinician educator, C and E, it was a big C and a very small E. We assumed at that time that anybody who could learn effectively could teach effectively, and that's not true. That term clinician educator has morphed into a different concept. And, and Jason, there was a group in Canada that actually did a study to look at what the current understanding of what a clinician educator is. I think it was University of Toronto. You need to have a clinical practice. That goes without saying. That's the, the little c. And, for, and the big E is that you have to apply educational theory 
to your teaching. You have to have scholarship in education, whether it's developing a curriculum or it's developing an assessment tool for your learners or something else. And then finally, you need to act as a consultant or advisor for other individuals. So you have to have special expertise in education that you can share. So that's the modern clinician educator with emphasis now on the E rather than the C. And to get there, there's a variety of things that one could do. You could look at local courses at your school or university. There are national educator courses like the Harvard Macy Institute courses I talked about. At some institutions, there are faculty fellowships. So maybe for a year, you spend 10 or 20% of your time learning the basics of education with a small group of colleagues and working on a project. It doesn't get you a degree at the end, but some of these are very highly regarded uh, programs. And then you could take a master's program, and there's a huge variety of these, from some that are totally in-person, like the Harvard Medical School one, um, to others that are totally online, and they're also hybrids in between. And they can last a year or two years. So the bottom line is to look at your institution and, and really do a deep dive to see what's available. I would expect at any institution, there are good steps for getting a formal education in medical education. And just to clarify, do you feel that it's needed? So if somebody is going is wanting to go on that track, do you strongly encourage them to do that? I absolutely strongly encourage them to do that. I'm of the opinion that you're at a disadvantage unless you have that kind of background. And again, there was an evolution. I mean, it used to be that the laboratory medicine, you spend a lot of time learning laboratory medicine techniques. Then when clinical research came around, there was no training initially in clinical research. Now you would never embark on a clinical research career without formal training. And I'd like to argue that you shouldn't um, embark on an education career without formal training as well. Speaking of your career in medical education, there are obviously a large number of different areas of focus within medical education. We've talked a little bit about learning theory. We've talked about competency-based uh, medical education. What is your primary area of interest within medical education? And can you talk about uh, some of the different areas of specialties that, that someone interested in being a clinician educator may consider. And this goes back to the one sentence description of me is faculty development. So my focus really is on teaching the teacher. And to that end, I've done a couple things at Children's. One is which is to develop an academy for teachers. Now, ours is interprofessional. So if you're a nurse educator or a pharmacy educator, you can also belong. We offer special programming, pilot grants, peer observation program, coaching and education. We've recently started within that a teaching certificate program. How do you improve the learning environment? You have to improve the teachers. So we've started a teaching certificate program that's not aimed at future educators. It's aimed at clinical teachers. And it's been 
very successful. I would like someday that anybody who enters a staff position where they're going to be teaching has to take some kind of program to prepare them. One of the reasons that we put together this podcast was really to provide high-quality pediatric GI education in this digital format. And so, you know, we would like to know what your thoughts are on online medical education resources like podcast. And specific to our podcast, if you've had a chance to listen to it, can you give us tips on how we can be more effective educators for our listeners? Phew. (laughs) No. So I am a huge fan of podcasts. In fact, we're in the process of making a series for our continuing education department. And so my plan is to interview you two to get more information on how you edit these things and move them forward. No, I'm a super huge uh, fan. I think allowing people to tell stories or give cases really helps solidify the learning and also concentrating as you do on some take-home points. So I'm all for that. Um, I think that the, you know, social media comes up as another avenue for medical education. And I've been at some of the Harvard Macy Institute courses where they have literally run a Twitter feed on the slides. And it's very interesting because questions will come up that then the teacher could potentially answer in real time. Uh, Sometimes, you know, comments like, can you believe how boring this is come up? But, you know, I think the Zoom era is preparing us, right? Because what do we have? The equivalent of having a Twitter feed going on at the time that you're teaching is the chat, right? Because people are always putting things in a chat and the the skill of incorporating what they put into the chat into your actual talk is challenging, but great. I also think that social media by itself, not in the context of a traditional uh, lecture, is of value. But I must confess that I have trouble keeping up with my emails, let alone my Twitter feed. And I do tweet uh, rarely, but I do tweet. When Peter and I first were brainstorming with Jason for this podcast, we met with Mike, um, Dr. Mike Custer, who runs PediaCast out of Nationwide Children's Hospital. And one of the things that we do when we think about our questions is we really try to think about two or three objectives that we would like people to take away. And so I wonder if that's too many, if that's too few, if you think it's a good idea for us to maybe focus more on one tiny topic. Like we we just were talking with someone about inflammatory bowel disease, which is huge. And so it's how do we straddle that wanting to reach a general audience, but also getting effective, high quality information out there? If people walk away from your podcast with two or three things that are enhancing their concepts, uh, their knowledge uh, schemes, 
then I think you're doing a, a great job. And TED Talks, right? You walk away with one or two, three or things. And I think that's really, if you can get people to do that, that's great. I love the fact that you double back to say, to talk about take home messages in this. I think that's really good. One to three things that people take it away. It's, it's really, you're being very successful. You guys are doing a great job. Thank you very much. Thank you. What do you feel has been the most rewarding part of your career in medical education so far? And, and what's been the most challenging? So the most rewarding, I think, is being able to create new programs like our teaching academy or the teaching certificate. But I also get a kick out of helping people develop their careers as educators. Because right now, in my institution, that's a more difficult pathway than being a basic researcher, ironically. And so we do a lot of help in terms of career counseling, reading CVs, and helping people buff them for educational promotion. Um, so seeing people move into leadership positions in education that have been my mentee, I think, is one of the greatest things. Uh, the challenges are the siloed mentality. In my academy, just to give you an indication, we can't talk about medical education. We have to talk about health professions education because medical education to nurse educators means physician education. So it's really pretty tricky. And I've worked very hard to break down silos between educators, and then the return on investment, getting our leadership to invest in education. They want to know how they're going to get a return on their investment, and that's difficult to show. And while you're reflecting back on your career, what has been some of the most effective advice you've ever received? And also, what advice do you give to your mentees? Uh, that's a good question. So I hinted at this a little bit. Um, so the kind of advice that I've received is sort of the, the need to reflect on your career. So I think Glenn Feruda, who's in Colorado, was great at this. Uh, Glenn used to write a one-year plan and a five-year plan and a lifetime plan. But being able to take a step away and think bad, think through and reflect on your career I, I, I is very good. Um, and the courage to take risks, you know, moving into informatics, totally new field, you know, so that's, but you never know unless you dove in to, to do it. Um, so taking risks and reflecting, I think are the most important things. And I try to give that advice to my learners. Uh, I also think as a gastroenterologist, I'm a big Nature. So I, when I ran my clinical department, I gave everybody a niche. And most of the time, that was 
at clinical niche. So you're going to be the eosinophilic esophagitis person. You're the aerodigestive person. You're the IBD person. You're the polyposis person. You're the whatever. And that kind of division led to less competition between people who are trying to work in the same area. And it really allowed people to get on the cutting edge and bring our program to the cutting edge. But that niche or specialization does not have to be a clinical area. It could be medical education. It could be informatics. It could be writing for the lay public. It could be advocacy. So I'm a big advisor that as a pediatric gastroenterologist, you should develop another area uh, within your career that will provide you special expertise that might advantage you for a, a job at some point in time, but it also allow you some more intellectual stimulation and challenge. So I, I tell people to be a double threat, pick two areas or an area, primary area and an area diversification, although I want everybody to be a great educator. Um, so I think that's uh, the advice I would give my learners and our listeners. I would say easier said than done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you have to look for the opportunities, right? Yeah. And sometimes an opportunity comes up that may not be your first choice, but really leads to a tremendous career. And I think we need that flexibility as well to take advantage of opportunities. So this has been really great. Uh, it's been great to talk about medical education and, and your career. Um, do you have any final words for our listeners? Well, I'd like to, I think, leave by saying that education is a viable career path for pediatric gastroenterologists and that there is a future for clinician educators, even at the most research-focused institutions. And I would tell people, as we have discussed, is get formal training on this early on and think about the scholarship that you can do as an educator. So that was a really, really great interview. I, I just, I thought it was so great to hear uh, Dr. Leitner talk about some of the theory and really get deep down onto sort of educational theory, but then also talk about how how we can make that practical and how that really applies to the lear learner in front of you um, and, and make it real. And he taught it in such a way that as an adult learner, I remember it. <laughs> exactly. He, he lives it and breathes it. That's what's important. My favorite, my favorite thing about medical education is really teaching to the level of the learner. And I think that uh, with our new trainees, it, this is the perfect time for us to really get a baseline assessment of what people know so that we can meet them there and take them to the next level. Absolutely. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at, at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. Yeah. And we really, really want to thank uh, you, the listeners. Uh, obviously, uh, it's thanks to you that, that we're still doing this. Um, but if you do have the time to uh, drop a short review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps us out by uh, letting other people know about the podcast and helping them find us. 
Yeah. And especially with the new trainees being here, be sure to share this podcast with them, not only in pediatric GI, but also in primary care and pediatrics. But wait, there's more. But wait. <laughs> um, if if you've had questions- Jason had his finger in the air. <laughs> it's true, but wait. Um, if you have questions for, for Dr. Leitner based on what you heard today or any of our former guests, why don't you drop us an email at- bowelsounds at naspaganda.org or tweet at us with a hashtag askbowelsounds and we might have your question answered on a future episode. Yep. And if you want to support the show or make a donation to the Naspagan Foundation, you can do so by visiting www.naspghan.org. The money you donate does help support the amazing things the Naspagan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Hey, we need to say one more thing before we sign off. So uh, I did want to say that the registration for NASPGAN annual meeting is up. If you are a trainee in the second year, or I think going into the third year, and you have interest in pediatric GI, definitely check out Teaching in Tomorrow. What is it called again? A, yeah, teaching in tomorrow. Yeah, check out teaching in tomorrow. It's a it's a great program. Uh, I did it when I was going through a pediatric training and met a lot of great people who are now uh, current colleagues across North America. Uh, fantastic program to explore the field. Yep. See you in Nashville. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Bye for now. Bye everybody. <laughs>